Hey everyone, thank you for listening to the Bibleology Podcast with Chessa and Lori. Hey friends, we love the Bible and we want you to love it too. Everyone should feel comfortable asking questions about the Bible, God, and their journey with Him. Join us as we study and talk about the Bible and Jesus, as well as learn scripture in a raw, honest, and challenging way. We share our own personal stories and viewpoints while teaching the Bible. You'll get to hear people's testimonies and some incredible and inspiring stories anywhere from a new believer to a seasoned Christian to a biblically trained scholar teaching us God's word. We hope to encourage you to dig deep into scripture and discover for yourself how important the Bible and your walk with Jesus is. Come along with us and grow your faith. Hey guys, so on today's episode, we have the honor and privilege of talking with Dr. Joel Mutamali. We woke up at the crack of dawn, but it was worth every single minute to talk to him and he does not disappoint. Yeah. So Dr. Joel Mutamale is a husband and a father and a self-declared theology nerd. He works for Proverbs 31 Ministries with Lisa Turkhurst. And also he shares how we can give and invest in global missions by subscribing to his Theology Tuesday Talks. And he also has an incredible website with theology resources that I've already used personally, Mm -hmm. and we'll link that in our show notes today. But today we get to know him. We get to hear a little bit about his heritage and how he is making a difference in the world today by teaching and sharing his wealth of knowledge of the Bible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And one thing that I really liked about him, because the Bible is, is hard for me to understand that he is just such an easy, he has such an easy down to earth approach when he teaches and has just a general gentle way of redirecting his followers just to go back to the text, go back to reading the Bible. And today we dig into a very strange passage that most of you have probably skimmed over, but today Joel takes us through a fascinating discussion on Psalm 82. And Lori and I are actually really interested to, um, Hear the feedback that we get yeah, from this episode for sure. because we know that this episode today is going to open up your eyes to scripture in a way that you've never looked at it before. Yeah. yeah. And we cannot wait until you guys can hear the very sweet and personal connection that Joel and Chessa have in common. And then lastly, just keep an eye out for his very first book coming out next year in 2024. Yeah, I can't wait for that one. All right. All right. Let's go, guys. Welcome to Bibleology Podcast, Joel. We are so excited that you are here with us today. We have really been looking forward to talking with you. And the topic we are going to talk about today is very exciting and something I guarantee that a lot of our listeners will not have heard up until now. Only a handful, a handful of them. So we are very excited about this topic. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, your family, and a little bit about the church you attend? Yeah. My name's Joel, and um, my wife and I, Brittany, we've been married for uh, going on 14 years. We've got um, four. Well, I'm so used to saying we've got three little boys because uh, for many, many years, we just had we had Liam, Levi, and Lucas. Uh, and then three years ago on Valentine's Day, we welcomed our baby girl, Amelia Jane. And um, she is, yeah, we call her, I call her MJ. Um, the whole family calls her MJ, but I call her MJ. Um, and my wife was like, wow, babe, you really love like calling her MJ. I'm like, of course, she's nicknamed after the greatest basketball player. Uh, yeah. And so um, it is a, just You have a fetish for um, Jordan shoes, I saw. Oh my gosh, it's bad. It's bad. <laughs> I mean, I'm a Chicago, so part of my background, I'm a Chicago boy through and through. I was born and raised in the Chicagoland area. 
Um, I watched Jordan win the three-peat. Um, I cried when he retired. I sobbed when I saw him play baseball. What a tragedy. Uh, <laughs> and then I absolutely rejoiced uh, with tears of joy when he came back and won another three-peat. And so um, I never had, like my parents were super frugal with their money and stuff like that. And so I just never had Jordans growing up and I always had the knockoffs. And um, so for me, just as, as an adult, I call it therapy. Maybe it's therapy. I don't know what it is. <laughs> My wife probably wouldn't use that word, uh, but it's just fun to have um, have Jordans, the especially the retros, the ones that I always wanted to have um, as a kid growing up. So my, my background beyond Jordan and Chicago, um, all that stuff, I have a background in biblical studies and theology. Um, I'm really honestly all a theology nerd. Um, I got an undergrad in biblical studies, um, got a uh, my uh, MDiv uh, from a Presbyterian spot. My undergrad was at a um, charismatic Bible college and um, then went on and got my THM and a PhD in biblical theology um, at a SBC Baptist um, seminary. My doctoral advisors, some names that may be familiar to some people, um, Dr. Patrick Schreiner, the younger, his um, dad is a renowned New Testament scholar. Um, Pat is a renowned scholar and prolific writer in his own rights. And then um, Dr. Michael Heiser, who recently passed, um, who's a legendary Old Testament scholar. And they were my advisors. And so, I mean, I had a New Testament giant and an Old Testament giant. And, and I, it was very undeserved. Like I'm not any academic elite. Um, my friends are going to be writing commentaries that graduated with me. Um, I'm super committed to doing theology for the everyday average Bible student. And so as Dr. Heiser often would talk about, um, he's a synthesizer. He would say he was a synthesizer of scholarship. I kind of am a, I, I want to collect all of these dots and then I want to connect them in a way that is meaningful and applicable. And then I want to communicate them in a way that it's accessible. Um, so I work for a ministry called Proverbs 31 Ministries. Uh, another name that might sound familiar, my boss is a guy named Lisa Turkhurst. Um, I bring oversight to theological development and research. Um, my full-time job is to study the Bible and to help teach the Bible and equip people with how to rightly um, read God's word as best as we can through a lens of humility. And so um, it is, it's wild. It is a wild journey. It is, I could never have drawn this up for myself. Um, and yet God is, uh, has been incredibly kind um, to me and my family and just the journey that we're on. Wow. Yeah. Two names pop up to me, Dr. Michael Heiser, who, um, I didn't even know about until Pete Heinegger. I had no mm. idea who Dr. Heiser was until he started talking to him about, and then Lisa Turkhurst, of course, yeah. we know who she is and all of our listeners are going to know exactly who she is. So yeah, that's, that's really cool, Joel. I mean, I always say that my dream job would be to study the Bible and teach it for the rest of my life. I mm. have not had um, the opportunity to do that yet, but on the side, I try to do that. So that's really cool. So you have actually some really cool ministries that you do. Your website is phenomenal. If you want to talk a little bit about that. And all, in fact, I am going through your free study on Amos right now Yeah. on my own. And I am really enjoying that. And then I also wanted to talk to you or wanted you to talk about your theology talks subscription. <laughs> I, yeah. well, cause I was just looking at your stories yesterday and the way the, the place that you, or the, where the funds go to your subscription funds, that is a great story. I wanted you to tell us a little bit about your background, yeah. your grandparents, just like the legacy in your family is phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, which, which one do you want me to tackle first? I blanked on the first thing that you asked me. So did I, where the funds <laughs> go? Uh, um, 
your website and all the that. website that's right that's what it was it was the amos it was the amos one it's hey y'all it is early for them i don't know if ever if you're if your uh listeners know it's like 6 a.m for them uh <laughs> right now and so i have no oh, excuse Lord, um, i just i just didn't yeah i just have kids um but so for me um the website mutamali.com um it's got uh, a email kind of sign up where I do this bite-sized theology thing. So in five minutes or less, every month you'll get an email that kind of helps um, you unpack a category. Right now it's systematic theology. I'm going to expand it out to biblical theology and some other things. And then I have a courses section on there. And some years ago, I I was just really struck by um, just the tragedy of injustice and, you know, in our society and our culture, even politically and socially, everybody's trying to make sense of what is the right human response in the midst of injustice. And my, my primary kind of rationale and principle, uh, and this is really Dr. Heiser um, and even our, our friend, we'll talk about him later, uh, Pete Heinegger. Um, one of the things that both of them had, have always encouraged me is like, well, go back to the text, go back to the text. What does the text say? And as I was thinking about it, I was like, man, you know, there's this minor prophet, Amos, who nobody ever talks about. But I have this suspicion that like, if we just read through Amos, we'd be like, this feels like what, what we're living in today. Like this feels exactly like the situations and circumstances that we're coming across. And God has some very specific things that he desires and he requires of his children um, who are living as sojourners and strangers in a land that is not their own. And yet they are witnesses of um, the coming kingdom. Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 5 as ambassadors. They're legitimate authorized representatives of the kingdom of God. And so the idea is for um, for the kingdom to come here on earth. And so how do we do that? So anyways, if you go through that Amos class, I had some great friends who joined me um, along the way for just some honest kind of discussion. And that was a lot of fun. Um, yeah. And then in terms of the Theology Talk subscriptions, on Tuesdays, I do this thing called Theology Talk uh, Tuesday. It's a lot of fun. Um, people, I just say, hey, ask me your theology questions. And it started off as just because I would get random kind of DMs from people. And I was like, well, why don't I just do this on Tuesdays and kind of systematize it? And it has just grown into its own little phenomena. And I get probably like over 100, 150 questions on a Tuesday. Some of them are super in-depth. I often have to find myself researching and kind of reading and and just figuring out even for myself, like how, how would I answer it? Because some of the questions I get are just so brilliant. Mm-hmm. Um, and along the way, I would get a lot of people who would say, hey, how can we support you? What are some things that you're passionate about in terms of ministry? And um, I was actually in India. My grandparents are missionaries in India. They were... Um, my grandfather at least was um, shared the gospel was shared to him. There's a time when the, the British had taken over India. It's a, it's a season called the British Raj. And during that time, um, India's, you know, it was, it was war basically. And so the land was taken from politically. They were in unrest. I mean, it feels a lot like probably what Israel felt like during the Roman occupation and all of that. And, um, and yet, you know, and this is the biblical pattern of scripture. And yet in the midst of a very difficult time, there came out of it, you know, and God sent missionaries to India and um, my grandfather's father, my great grandfather, he was a um, military general. It's a little, some of this is kind of um, mythology almost now. Like we're trying to figure out all the details, but basically the story is he was high up in the military in India. You have social caste systems that, 
put you in places of position and status and authority. So he was high up there and he like really believed in justice and he really didn't like um, bad things to happen to people. And he, a lot of negative evil people didn't like that. And so they poisoned his drink one day and he died. And so I know. And so in Indian culture, when the patriarch dies, the family becomes orphans, basically, and you lose all your status. You basically become kind of like one step up from the untouchable class. And so my great grandmother was, you know, just desperate for her son to have some kind of education. And these British missionaries come and they're like, hey, we'll give your son an education, a place to stay. We'll take care of him. And so my grandfather ended up going to this British missionary um, school. Uh, they share the gospel with him. He God saves him. Um, he could, he helps to share the gospel with his family. They all get saved. And for 62 years, my grandfather and then my grandmother have been in um, a village in India and now in the major cities outside of it, basically working with um, groups of people that are untouchables, that are the outcasts of society, working specifically with orphans um, in communities where either they've been abandoned by their parents or one parent has died. And so it's been financially incapable of them to be able to take care of their kids. And they give them an education. They give them the gospel. So basically the exact same thing that my grandfather had, he kind of replicated um, in his wife. And they have had this incredible ministry. They have um, a pastor's training school. They, uh, my mom is a is a nurse. She's a, a doc, doctor nurse, I guess. She got her DNP, um, a doctor in nursing practicing now. And so she's got a medical ministry angle of it. And so anyways, I'm going a long, long way. It's just a rich heritage. And so one of the things that we, I thought about is like, gosh, I think one of the ways that we can invest in missions and in very tangible things um, to show the gospel to people that desperately need it is through the Theology Talk subscriptions. And so when you subscribe, you get some fun stuff, you know, like when I do book, book uh, clubs, you will get to get special videos. Um, I get to give you a little bit of behind the scenes on my projects, writing projects that I'm working on. If I'm doing recordings for therapy and theology with Lisa and the team, you get background into that. So there's some like perks that come with it, but really the main thing is just an opportunity for people to, um, to give and invest in global missions, um, particularly with my family in India. And then my dream, I shared on my stories yesterday. I really feel like Lord uh, one day is going to make a way for us to have a theology conference in India because we have so many opportunities y'all like even online or whatever to get theological access and training and the majority Majority, I would say 80, 90 percent of pastors um, don't even have like vacation Bible school level of academic theological training. Um, and yet they're like learning and they're studying and they're being faithful what they have. And, and many, many people are coming to Christ. And so what an incredible opportunity would be for us to go. And like for me, like I would love to bring some scholars, some theologians um, and to just do, you know, like a week long seminar, um, theological deep dive to equip um, these people that are doing really important work. That's incredible. That's awesome. Our mouths are like, I know we're just staring at each time. That is so amazing. You know, God is so good. He's so faithful. And to see like how that comes full circle to think that what happened to your great grandfather was, you're right. That is kind of like a, like a, it's almost like a movie, Mm -hmm. which you know what? That might make a good movie, Joel. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, yesterday, my grandparents celebrated 62 years of marriage, y'all 62 years. And I'm like, Every time that I get a, I get a message like, "Hey, are you going to write like a book on parenting or marriage?" I'm like, "No, no, no. there will be no book on like I'm just going to point you to my grandparents Aww. and um, they that is the book of uh, of marriage. And if you ask them what the secret is, they would say um, prayer and forgiveness. And, oh you know, man, 
I love your stories. I love seeing them just minister to people and just to give, because it's a sacrifice. And also I saw that your mom, in order to get her nursing degree, didn't she come to America to get it? And your aunts and your uncle yeah. raised yeah, that's a huge, your yeah. For a Yeah, that's a years. huge part. Yeah, that's a huge part of my story. Um, I actually outline a bunch of this in my book that comes out next year. Um, but um, my mom was finishing nursing school. And so I was a year and a half. And so she sent me, uh, my dad was working night, uh, a night, night shift in um, county hospital in Chicago as an x-ray technician. And so, you know, they're both immigrants in a land that's not their own. I mean, it's very difficult for them. And they're trying to make um, a stable foundation for their children, future children. I was the only child at the time. So they sent me back to India. So for the first two and a half years, I was actually raised in India by my mom's four sisters and her two brothers. And of course my grandparents. And so that concept of um, being raised by a village is like so true for me. So even the language that I use in Telugu, which is our native language um, that we speak in our, in our area of India, the language that I use for my aunts and for my uncles, if we literally translate it, you know, it's it's much more like uncle and aunt. Um, I don't know the etymology and roots of the English of it, but in Telugu, like the words that we use, it it's more literally little because of the age of my mom. My mom's the oldest. Everybody is younger underneath her. So because they're all younger, I refer to all my aunts as little mom and all my uncles as little dad. Now, if they were older than my mom, I would call them big mom or bigger dad. Um, so it's depend on the relationship with my mom. But I mean, that's how intimate and, um, you know, vital that kind of community component is. And um, it was really, really special. My first language was Telugu. I mean, I remember my earliest memories are of getting up early in the morning with my grandfather and watching him and going with him to rural villages as he taught the gospel. And um, very special. Well, I mean, and can't you even imagine right now sending your daughter over there? Like the oh, sacrifice no. that your yeah. parents made and just look at the, the fruit, like the heart. That's what I'm, I just see in your grandparents, like these hard sacrifices, your grandparents and then your parents and to see the fruit, like, look what you're doing. Look yeah. how you are ministering to the world. Yeah. It's amazing. It's just an amazing story. And I'm very excited about your book. I know you can't talk about it, but <laughs> I'm very excited about it. So listeners, there will be a book coming out and we will make sure to promote it when it comes out, because I'm really excited about that. And I have a really, really deep question for you. Yeah. So okay. your, your theology talk, somebody um, asked a question. You said it was their fa your favorite question yet about roller coasters and ethics. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. I love that. Yeah. Good yeah. Thoughts. Yeah. I was just like, I, but I think that's the beauty of those questions is yeah. I really believe theology should be done in the context of community. It was never designed to be done in through Exodus and see how Moses describes giving God's word to the people. Um, it, it, the stories are supposed to be told in community so that you can um, weep and celebrate in community. It's, it's actually community forming. And so as you're formed individually, you're being formed as a community. And I just think that um, on Tuesdays, it's so fun because I never think like I would never think to ask that kind of question, you know, um, yeah, right. and it is just brilliant. Right. So like it exercises my theological imagination in a new way. And I'm just like, it's really everybody thinks that it's like I'm doing this for them. It's not. Y'all are doing it for me. You know, like yeah. I'm becoming be a better like yeah. thinker of God's uh, word. And so, um, yeah, don't be fooled. It's like pretty selfish. I'm just like, gosh, that's a good <laughs> question. I love that. Yeah, it's I, I love that. All right, so we got to talk about Pete real quick before yes. we move on to what we're going to talk about today. So 
I want you to tell me first how you met Pete and then I'll tell you how I met Pete. <laughs> yeah. Pete, um, Pete Heinegger will go down as um, a living legend in my family. I worked for many, many years um, at Logos Bible Software. And um, um, the probably the best Bible software you can ever have as a, as a Bible student or anybody who loves loves God's word. And when I was there, one of the very first people that I met was this guy named Pete. And um, it was a big company, or it still is, you know, hundreds of employees. And um, Pete just like, he was high up. He was one of the executives um, and I was not. And um, he just had this way of bringing people into the fold, you know? Um, and he just like early on just mentored me. He encouraged me. I, I really had that experience of like, if you guys have ever heard the phrase, like you're like, you're a little fish in a really big, you know, what is it? You're a, you're a big, you're a little fish in a little pond or a big fish in a little pond. And then you go out of that pond and you go into the ocean. You realize, Oh gosh, I'm tiny, you know, in, in the midst of everything. And that's how I felt when I went to Logos. I was like, man, I felt really safe and secure in my role before. And then I went there and I was like, Oh, I don't know anything. And Pete was just a source of stability and encouragement. And, um, and yeah, he was just very special to us and to our family. Um, my son's, third when Liam was four maybe it was four or five um Pete showed up to his birthday party at our house with a um with a fart gun of and course he did, <laughs> course he did. yeah and I think it was a minions it was a minions fart gun and we ended up moving you know after a couple of years there and I'm not even joking with you that and I tried to get rid of that thing so many times it <laughs> showed up in every box and every house and every time I'd take a picture, I'd send it to people. I'm like, man, you're still messing with us. You know, we'd hear that thing in the middle of the night and um, I have a really fun picture of Liam and Pete and Liam's holding it up um, and kind of pointing it at Pete. And he's got this big old smile on his face. Like, Oh my gosh, I got got. And uh, <laughs> so Pete and his wife, Shara and their daughters, uh, we just love them to death. Um, so a few years ago, Pete reached out to us, to let us know that he was diagnosed with stage four um, colon cancer and, um, just walked through a really, really difficult time. Um, with that, obviously he did and his family and, um, all of us that were close to him. And so, um, earlier this year, I got the chance to go out, um, with another close friend of ours to visit him, um, as he was in hospice care. And, um, in uh, a section of my book, um, I'll go and give you the chapter title. Yeah, the title is called, um, when bad things happen to humble people. And, um, Pete, I just, I wrote a section about that for him and I got to read, read it to him and to his family. Mm -hmm. And it, it was, um, a special, a special moment. And then uh, a couple weeks after that, Pete passed. Wow. Yeah. I'm trying not to cry right now because, um, when you say that Pete was like a, you know, a legend in your household, that's how we feel too. Um, I met Pete, it has been, my baby is 18 now, and I met him, I think when I was, I was, I was pregnant with my youngest, because Shara came to the hospital <laughs> when I had Adam, and, you know, friends come and they visit in the hospital, and you love it, but Shara walked in with a gallon of ice cream <laughs> and of a spoon, she looked yeah. at me, and I said, oh my gosh, I love you. And she sat there and ate it with me. And it was so fun. She was just that type of person. Yeah. Well, she is that type of person. She's just a great, fun, loving person. But I met Pete in a very um, theologically challenging 
part of my life. Like mm. the season in my life, I was, if you listen to some of our other podcasts, I talk a lot about um, the church that I was raised in. And P had, and his wife had come on to our church as youth pastors. And mm. it was the first mm. time that our church had actually hired somebody specifically for pastoring youth. And right away, I mean, he's a football guy. My husband was a football coach. I have four boys. They all love football. Justin, my husband, and Pete just instantly became friends. And me and Shara just hit it off. So um, we were very close to them. And, you know, they had five girls, of course. We had four boys, like complete opposite families. Well, at the time, mm-hmm. they, only had, um, they only had four at the time. So Sebra uh, hadn't been born yet. But because um, Sebra and Adam are the same age. They're both graduating this year. So they were born around the same time. And Pete was so kind to, I would go over to their house all the time and just ask a ton of questions because the church that I was raised in, we were taught we were the only ones going to heaven. So Pete and Shara really walked me through just accepting other people, you know, in the Lord who believed in Jesus, other denominations, because um, I was raised in this church, my, like three or four generation Church of Christ member. So he really walked me through a lot and mm-hmm. we were very close to them. They came to our boys football games. Um, they would come over and hang out. I would watch their girls for them. Just Pete is an amazing man. He always had time for my questions. He was always kind and gentle. He was always humble. He never got frustrated at me. He would show me books. Like he, he let me borrow his book at Enoch. I didn't even know what that was at the time. (laughs) I was like, what? And first of all, you know, being, you know, when you first get a book like that, you're like, okay, am I doing something wrong? Like, right, right. Bible. Am I sinning? Yeah. Why am I reading this book right now? But he was just so good about that. Even when they moved away, they moved, you know, to Michigan and we ended up going there and visiting them and hanging out with them. And then they went to Colorado. Um, Well, no, actually they went to Logos um, Software first. He worked there first. Bellingham. So, yep. And um, anyway, I love them so much. They're great people. So I still have his book of Enoch. I still have it. And (laughs) I know Shara's going to listen to this and if she really wants it back, I will give it back to her. <laughs> I really love that. I just love that I have a piece of him still in our family. And um, when he passed, that really, um, it was really hard. But I text him when he was at home, what, on hospice. And I just text him. And at the end of my text, I just said, I'll see you soon. Like, I'll see you again. You know, this isn't the end. So I was so excited. You know, I'm so, when Shara saw that I had shared one of your posts on Instagram, she instantly texted me and said, Hey, you need to come out for Sebra's graduation because Joel is standing in for Pete at the graduation. I'm like, wait, Joel Matamale like that. And she goes, yeah. I'm like, you know him. And she goes, yes, we love him. We're great friends with him. Anyway, it was just so cool. Then I instantly messaged you. I was like, okay, I need to let him know that we have a new. Yeah. Pete, my, um, and the football thing, and we can go forever on that. That's another thing Pete and I connected on. We're both from Chicago. So we're, I mean, think two Bears fans stuck in the middle of the Pacific Northwest amongst (laughs) heathens, you know? So we, we just, we just really bonded with that. But, um, that last, uh, week or that week when I was there, uh, it was playoffs week. And so me and another buddy, Matt, uh, Peterson and, and, uh, Pete, he was in hospice in his bed, but we got to watch the game together. Like I brought over, a, we brought over some pizza for, for the family. And, uh, we sat there and we watched, I think it was the 49ers game, uh, where, uh, the quarterback got injured and Pete was just like, this is a horrible game. Like, this, this is, you know, 
and it was just so fun yeah it was so fun to watch to watch that game and pete actually is a connection to from a theology standpoint i grew up in a very um like actually have a christian church background as well and um i reformed uh in many ways and the concept of the unseen realm and the supernatural world were not malnourished i mean they were non-existent in my theological formation and p was like hey um, there's this guy that's a scholar in residence here at Logos. His name's Michael Heiser. Um, you really should should get to know him. And I was like, Pete, Dr. <laughs> Heiser is a legend. Like he's not going to spend any. And he's like, no, just just give him a little bit of your background and then just talk. And sure enough, um, Pete was my entry point into Dr. Heiser. And I would find myself in Heiser's office every now and then, and we would just chat. Sons of God, Unseen Realm. Um, Mike would pick holes at my um, weak argumentation uh, for, you know, why we should read Sons of God as Sons of Israel versus Sons of God. And just Mike just destroyed me on that and in a kind, loving way. And so that was the entry point where Pete actually made that connection for me. And um, I know Pete and Mike were very, very close. And so then, you know, you fast forward, what, a decade later, um, Mike becomes my doctoral advisor, you know? So, and you just trace that all that stuff back to the kindness of Pete Heinegger, who's just yes. like, let me just connect the right people, you know? Yeah. Like, you have an area of your life that is um, non existent and malnourished. And um, here's a person who can help you. And Pete was just, that, that was his, his legacy. That is his legacy. Yeah, that's actually how I found out about Dr. Michael Heiser, too, was through Pete. Like you said, years and years ago, he was at Logos, and he said, have you heard of this guy before? And of course I hadn't. He, Pete knew that. He knew that, you know, I didn't hear him. I go, I've never heard him before in my life. He's like, you need to read his stuff. So then I told my mom, and my mom started buying all of his books. So my mom actually has a little mini Heiser library at her house. So anytime <laughs> I read anything, I just go. And then there's a, a smaller group of us of women at our church we had, I had started a mentoring program to kind of train up Bible, um, women's Bible study leaders in our church. And we were taught, I was teaching them how to study the Bible and how to dig things, you know, out of the Bible and just, you know, all different kinds of tools and commentaries and, you know, apps and stuff. And I go, okay, what do you guys want to study on? And they go, I don't know. So I go, well, let's pick, I go, do you guys want to study angels? Do you want to study like, you know, love, mercy? Let's just pick something that we can start digging into. And they go, we want to do angels. I go, great. So then I start pulling up verses, you know, about, you know, the book of Daniel and all these, you know, passages they've never heard of before. And then we got up, got on the, the topic of the unseen realm and they looked at me and I go, okay, so what do you guys want to do? You guys want to keep doing the mentoring thing? Or do you want to go into this? They're all, we want to go into that. I go, mm-hmm. perfect. So we got into Genesis six and all those fun topics. And now we're going through the unseen realm together. So. It's awesome. Very exciting. Yeah. So yeah, we could, you could probably talk about Dr. Heiser this whole entire episode because that's how phenomenal he is. And I thought it was very um, ironic that both of them passed away within a few weeks of each other. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Dr. Heiser just a few weeks after. So that was probably really hard for you too. Oh my gosh. I mean, yeah, just brutal. And um, we just found out yesterday, I just read a update from um, Tim Keller, you know, Tim has um, pancreatic cancer. And he just is in uh, at the time of this recording, he just went into hospice. And so um, based off of that update, it sounds like Tim only has days or or so Mm -hmm. as well. So it's just it's a it's a tough season of theological, I would call them legends and giants. I had one friend, I can't, I think it was Ann Voskamp, um, Ann posted yesterday. Mm -hmm. 
and um, she she likened Keller to um, C.S. Lewis, and I'm just like, yeah, wow. you know, like in, in our time and day, um, you know, you're gonna have known like worldwide people like Heiser and um, Dr. and Keller that you know are just so so profound, um, and then you have people like Pete who are um, known in their circles. Uh, and yet when you talk to some of the most well-known people, they'll be like, oh yeah, there's this guy, Pete Heinegger, you know, yeah. <laughs> he is the hidden, like just behind the scenes champion. Mm -hmm. uh, like that's my, so like, you know, whatever the Lord does in my life at some point, I'll be like, yeah, there's this guy, Pete, you know, actually I have this, uh, one of the cool things Pete, uh, and Cher did for us was, um, he, you know, he loved his hats and so he had different hats. So I have a signed Pete Heinegger hat, his bear's hat. <laughs> It sits in my study. If we're on video, you guys will be able to see it. It sits in my study. Um, and then I've got um, a comment um, that Heiser wrote uh, on my dissertation where he basically was like, hey, I don't think you're going to be able to prove this. And then later on, he was like, wow, I'm super surprised. Not only were you able to prove it, but uh, it was uh, personally beneficial. I've never even heard this before. And, you, and, you, you know? and I'm like, oh, my gosh, I got to frame this, <laughs> this comment. And so I just, as I'm sitting here in my study doing my theology, I just, you know, I just laugh because I go, huh, I got uh, Pete watching over me and um, I've got Mike and, and they're in the unseen realm right now and just oh, yeah. um, icons of, of them. And they both were football people. So as I first take on or I watch how the, the Green Bay Packers just stink, um, I just, you know, say, at least That's you don't awesome. have to deal with it anymore, Mike. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that this is a perfect segue into what we want to talk about today. So, um, you know, the premise of our podcast is we want people when they come across something that they don't understand in the Bible, you know, a lot of pe people tend to just read over things or gloss over it. And we want people to dig into scripture and to be okay sitting with something that they don't quite understand and then, you know, doing the work to figure it out. Yeah. So there is a particularly strange verse that we are going to talk about today. Actually, it's a small chapter in um, Psalms, Psalms 82. Mm -hmm. And it's very confusing. And a lot of people, when I bring it up to them, they go, oh my gosh, I didn't know it said that because more than likely they've read it, but they just kind of glossed over it. So I'm going to read Psalms 82 and then Joel, I'm going to let you take it away on yeah. this chapter. So um, I'm reading out of the um, Christian standard Bible. So Psalms 82, it says, God stands in the divine assembly. He pronounces judgment among the gods. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Provide justice for the needy and the fatherless. Uphold the rights of the oppressed and the destitute. Rescue the poor and needy. Save them from the power of the wicked. They do not know or understand. They wander in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods. You are all sons of the most high. However, you will die like humans and fall like any other ruler. Rise up, God. Judge the earth for all the nations belong to you. And right away, we see two things in this chapter that are strange, right? God's mm -hmm. standing in a divine assembly. He's pronouncing judgment among gods. And then also he said, you are gods, but you will die like humans. Mm -hmm. So explain, explain that to us. Why are there other gods in this chapter? Yeah. Well, I think one of the things that you just did is really important. Um, and I don't want us to overlook it is you've rightly 
framed Psalm 82 in its ancient Near Eastern context. One of the big challenges that we have when we read this is, um, you know, you're familiar with Mike and, and um, ancient Near Eastern kind of ideology, which is where we can frame it. For us, sometimes as modern readers, we just look at it and we're like, wait a minute, this if 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 we read it the way that it naturally reads, it starts to feel like Greek mythology. Like, is this Zeus? And you got the the gods around there. And if that's the case, like, and, and instantly it becomes not only uncomfortable, but quickly offensive. And so for a long time in church history, um, Augustine um, is an example. Luther is a, is an example. They've, they've looked at this passage and they've tried to, I, I'm going to use a technical phrase here. They tried to demythologize it. And what do I mean by that? They tried to strip the supernatural elements outside of it and keep it an earthly context in order to make it rational and sensible to the modern kind of reader. So so the what they would say is, well, God stands in the divine assembly, the um, the Hebrew word for God, there's Elohim, um, stands in the divine assembly. He pronounces judgment amongst the gods, Elohim. Now, what is that word Elohim? And so they will try to make a claim that this word Elohim could refer to human rulers. And so what you actually have here is Yahweh standing in a um, in a courtroom setting with human rulers, and he's upset at these human rulers because they're acting unjustly and they're being wicked and, you know, and all this other stuff. Now, here's where, you know, a little bit of Hebrew grammar is super important. Um, one, you do know that the Elohim, the first time it shows up, is singular, um, and then the second one is plural. So you can't get away get away from that reality um, in terms of grammatical structure. Then the next one is where else in Scripture is Elohim referred to as human rulers? You're not going to find it. You know, there's one odd reference of Moses potentially like that. There's a, a connection, but it it's 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 an off kind of example that doesn't hold up in terms of every other usage of Elohim. Every time Elohim is used, Elohim is the general description for supernatural beings, disembodied beings. Now, you may be wondering, wait a minute, what does that mean about God? Well, Elohim, like I said, it's a general term. When God is being described as Elohim, he's being described as Yahweh. So well, this is one of the things that Mike, Mike has said that I think is so important, that, um, that, um, that God is species unique, that God is Elohim, but no Elohim is Yahweh. Right. And so this is kind of an important thing. So what you actually have in the ancient world is this concept that the, that God is a king and as a king, he has a court and having a court, that court is filled with royal members that all have responsibility. They all have duties. And so what God is doing here in Psalm 82 is actually a judgment scene because he's got um, supernatural beings that are part of his divine counsel. And then verse 2 tells us exactly why it's a judgment scene. Yahweh is looking at them. And in fact, your English translations, they're, they're giving you this idea even. I'm reading from CSB. It uses a capital G for God. For the gods, it uses a lowercase g. I think the ESV does the exact same thing. God is a capital G. The gods is lowercase g. So they're kind of even hinting at this kind of translation idea or interpretation idea but why are they in trouble because they've been acting unjustly and because they've become wicked and then god says well yahweh says to these 
supernatural beings. Hey, what you should have been doing is provide justice for the needy and the fatherless. What you should have been doing is to uphold the rights of the oppressed. What you should have been doing is rescue the poor and the needy um, and save them from the wicked people. But, but you don't understand and you walk around in darkness. Um, and, and in fact, because of your misunderstanding and because of your evil ways, the actual foundations of the earth, earth are shaking. They're becoming instable. And then verse six, it's a declaration. He says this. I said, you are gods, you're Elohim. You're all sons of the most high. Now, if we take this phrase and we refer back to, well, this is the same phraseology, sons of the most high, that um, is in Hebrew, bena Elohim is another way to say it. This is Deuteronomy 32, eight through nine, that um, God appointed um, the sons of God to the the nations of, of the world. This is the same phrase that's used in um Job that refers to the sons of God that present themselves in the opening scene of Job uh, to him. It's a divine counsel scene. So here's here's again the challenge. If you try to take a human ruler reading of Psalm 82, and then you then you're in terms of theological interpretation of scripture, like the way that we interpret scripture, you're then kind of forced into a move where you have to be able to justify this reading by then trying to read that into other places in scripture. But the problem is you can't read human rulers into Psalm 32, 8 through 9, especially now with the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, that all read that verse, the Masoretic text, the original Hebrew, as being angelic beings. So you're going against the grain massively with that. Um, when you look at the opening pages of Job, contextually, it makes no sense to have human people in the divine council, like before uh, you get into the earthly situation with Job, like... That makes no sense. You see, so this is where that human rulers thing really does fall apart. But I think the linchpin is verse seven. However, you will die like humans. This is incoherent with a human ruler's view. How in the world, why in the world would God give a punishment to human rulers, which is in accordance with the normal punishment they would have anyways? Humans are going to die. That is the natural outcome of humans. You know, like you've heard the phrase that humanity has a hundred percent mortality rate, right? Like humans are going to die. So why would God give a consequence to these human rulers to just die? That just doesn't make sense. Well, it does make sense if these are supernatural beings that now have to face a human consequence, which is death, Gehenna, the lake of fire, in light of their corruption of humanity. And then verse 8, I think, is this epic moment. In fact, I wrote about it on my Instagram about uh, yesterday was Ascension Day. This Sunday, the 21st, is going to be Ascension Sunday. Um, verse 8 says, rise up. This is Ascension language. And then again, God, Elohim. Now we know we're, we're in a singular. We're back to the singular. It's referring to one person. So rise up, Elohim, God. Judge the earth for all the nations belong to you. Well, who is this God? And how does it show up? And notice it says rise up. So you have the speaker speaking and referring to somebody else. So the speaker, in terms of like the way it's structured, they can't be referring to themselves. Well, who is this God? Well, the way I read this is, well, it's Jesus. Jesus is waiting in this courtroom scene, almost off scene, listening, hearing, witnessing. And in this epic moment in verse 8, God says, and by the way, because of your, as he's talking to these, um, to these unjust, um, uh, rebellious sons of God, these, um, these Elohim, he says, your punishment is coming. And by the way, the, the one who's going to cast punishment is Jesus. It's Yahweh. 
uh, Elohim is come, judge the earth, then all the nations belong to you. If you go to uh, Ephesians 1, um, look at chapters 1 and chapters 2, you have this exact same idea that God has exalted Jesus um, and raised him and put him above all powers, principalities, authorities. This is Paul language for supernatural beings, that, that all things have been subjected to Jesus on earth and in, and in heaven. This is actually, in my view, I'm going to write about this in a, a lot more uh, detail in the future, but I actually see Ephesians 1 and 2 being the conclusion of the tension of Psalm 82. The judgment scene actually comes to a, comes to a final conclusion in Ephesians where Jesus is ascended, and in his ascension, these... Um, supernatural rebellious beings are under judgment and Ephesians 2 talks about the dividing wall of hostility has been torn down so the ethnos of the world the nations of the world are reunited and brought back into the family of God and so um, Psalm 82 is really referring to God um, not standing idly by to watch injustice take place and another some big principles here this is Ephesians 6 that the evil that we see today is actually evidence of a supernatural evil that has infected humanity. And so these same kind of angelic beings are infecting systems and structures. The, the cre creation itself, Romans 8, so the creation itself is groaning. Well, well why? Because it's not living and acting and, 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 um, and organized in the way that God intended because of these evil beings and, and because of sin and how it's corrupted humanity and how we are active agents of sin. And so Jesus is the restorer of bringing peace back to earth. I, that's phenomenal. I had never even thought of Jesus, that verse eight referring to Jesus and the connection to Ephesians. That's, that's blowing my mind right now. I, I think too, um, when we, when we talk about the divine assembly, so if you're raised in a traditional Christian church, like, you know, both of us were, and the first time I heard this, and I'm sure for you also, Joel, and for people listening right now, I know we have listeners that are saying, what are you talking about? What, what do you mean this word gods? There's one God. There's only one God. We're a monotheistic religion. We don't believe in other gods. But the word is obviously used not only in this particular scripture, but also in the other ones that you refer to. Yep. So, like in Deuteronomy. So how do we how do we wrestle with this word, the multiple gods, the singular God, when we know that Yahweh, like you just said, God is Elohim, but no other Elohim is Yahweh. Yeah. How do we wrestle with that and keep our same, because I believe when you start getting into this, it, for me, what it did is it made God more powerful. It yeah. made God more to me than what he was before understanding this. So try to explain that. How do we accept the fact that there are other entities that God chooses to work with? Yeah. I mean, um, Part of this is paradigm. We both are fans of the Blurry Creatures podcast. I'm a big, like Luke and Nate and those guys are, are good friends. And oh, I by love... the way, Joel, you might be able to help us to get them on our podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're, they are, awesome. they are awesome. They're awesome. They're awesome. Um, and one of the things they often talk about is, is what happens when a paradigm breaks, you know, and scary when a paradigm breaks, it's, um, it's confusing, but ultimately what ends up, what can happen when it's, when it's rightly done 
it actually brings more clarity. And so when we're talking about like this idea of a divine counsel and God being a king, like all we're doing is using the natural language that the human authors of scripture are using to describe the, the, the reality of the divine author. So Yahweh, God himself is working through by the power of the Holy Spirit to inspire and to guide these human authors in order to write these things. And now it's just like a bit of logic, right? Why would we believe that there is a God and, and Yahweh as being unique? And then we also, for the most part, the average everyday person is going to be like, yeah, and there's Satan. Like Satan is, a, is, is the enemy of God, right? Um, well, how do you make sense of the gods of the nations? How do you make sense of uh, the demons of the New Testament? How do you make sense of um, Paul's language of, of supernatural beings, the entire chapter of Ephesians 6? Like, how, how do we make sense of these things if we strip out this category of supernatural beings in, a, in, in the world, right? And so, again, this is a categorical error that when we see Elohim, that when we see the, the word gods, we have in our modern day culture been trained to always put a capital in front of that G. And if you always put the capital in front of that G, it's always going to make you like freak out. Like, wait a minute, hold up, wait a minute, right? But what if we're just talking category and this category of Elohim is any disembodied spirit. In fact, I have an article that I that I wrote, very lay article on my um, Substack. I can send you guys the link to it if you want to link in the show notes to it, where I go awesome. through what Elohim is. Um, I'm actually just really regurgitating Heiser's very academic version of this, so I can even send that um, as well. But um, it does not take away from the deity of Jesus or the deity of Yahweh. Like, like we still believe in the Trinity. There's still God, three in one, one in essence, distinct in persons. What we're also doing is we're widening that net and just saying, and we're acknowledging what God himself acknowledges, that there are supernatural beings that are part of his counsel. Some of those beings went into rebellion, just like human rebellion. Like, here's a quick little summary. There are three kind of epic rebellions that take place in the first couple chapters of Genesis, each mirroring each other. I actually go through this in my dissertation. In Genesis 3, you have human and supernatural rebellion adam and eve human and hosh the serpent supernatural in genesis um chapter six you've got the sons of god same language and human women and you've got um an earthly and supernatural rebellion then you that leads right into the flood right that's an earthly consequence for this earthly and supernatural rebellion and then you have genesis 11 the tower of babel You've got human rebellion, but you have to read Genesis 11 in light of Deuteronomy 32, 8 through 9, which is the backdrop of that, which is now supernatural rebellion. So this, the very first chapters of Genesis, Genesis 1 through 11 give testimony and witness to the presence of these supernatural beings. Now, if we then say, oh, wait a minute. Okay, so Yahweh can uniquely be Yahweh, the creator of all things, and, not but, and, it is absolutely possible for there to be um, supernatural beings out there that God created himself to do his work that went into rebellion. Now, how do we make sense of the of, of the Exodus and, and the story in, in Joshua and pretty much the entire Old Testament? Oh, the gods of the Old Testament are not inanimate objects. They are real supernatural beings that are leading the nations astray. Oh, they're actually enticing Israel to worship themselves. Oh, when earthly battles are taking place, there is a supernatural reality also. This is the entire book of Daniel, right? Yeah. 
And this is verse 8 of Psalm 82. This is why the, the inheritance for Jesus is the nations. The nations always belong to Jesus. Um, they always belong to, to Yahweh. And so Jesus just reunites the nations and stops the enemy from being able to deceive them. And so it's a categorical challenge that we have. But I promise you, if we can break through to just see the proper categories and, and just and live with like, yes, and Yahweh is uniquely Yahweh. Honestly, your entire Old Testament is going to come alive in ways that you would never have thought before. Uh, 100%. Yeah, that's exactly what happened to me. I was just my I just could not believe what I was hearing, reading, understanding finally for the very first time. It was incredible. It is. So real quick, Joel, I want to ask you. So when you go to an 82, it's kind of telling what the job of these gods, what their job is. They obviously have a purpose. You know, God created everything for a purpose. Every entity has a job, every, you know entity has a purpose of what they're supposed to do. So when we read verses two and three and four, it's obvious that the job that they were given, they were not following through correctly. So can you talk a little bit about that? Because when we go into Job, you also see other entities like the Satan and his office and category and job and what he was supposed to do. So maybe talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so, you know, we're connecting some some scriptures together in order to give us a clear vision of it. Um, Again, let's go to Deuteronomy 32, 8 through 9. This is the aftermath of Genesis 11 and the Tower of Babel when the people are diversified um, after the loss of the one language that unites them all. So verse 8 says, When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, notice the inheritance language, when he divided mankind to fix the borders of the peoples according to the numbers of the Ben Elohim, the sons of God. Um, your Bibles may, if it's like older uh, versions of, of the Bible, uh, copyright dates that are older, it might say sons of Israel. Um, look at the little footnote over there, and it's going to say in the Septuagint or the Dead Sea Scrolls, um, it will say sons of God. And actually, the majority of Bible translations now have switched it because the overwhelming evidence is it, it should be um, the sons of God. So you've got that. And then the rest of the time, the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is. So the question is, why does God give the nations over to these angelic beings? And Psalm 82 helps us inversely see it. It's delegated authority. Um, In verse 9, God says, okay, Israel, Jacob, I'm going to keep as my own. The nations I'm going to give to my faithful subjects. They're supposed to care for them. They're supposed to um, protect them. They're supposed to lead them into Torah obedience, into law, and into um, right standing before me. And then you have Deuteronomy 4.19 where God actually warns Israel, and this is kind of that, that wait, what went wrong? Verse 19, and beware, lest you raise your eyes to heaven when you see the sun and the moon and the stars and all the host of heaven. Now, the Hebrew phrase here, host of heaven, it's like a synonym for sons of God or um, angelic host, the heavenly host. This is what it's referring to, that you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them. Things that the Lord your God had has a look at the allotment language. Things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. And so this is where when we take all these pieces and we put them together, we go, oh, wait a minute. 
um, they were supposed to originally just be faithful stewards and protectors, guardians of the nations. And instead, what they do is they entice them into worship. And when they entice them into worship, they no longer are protectors, but they entice them through unjust, wicked ways. And they set up systems and structures within these societies and within these nations that oppress the poor, that elevated the wicked, that gave strength to um, the evil, and that subjected the, um, the weak and those that are on the margin. It's actually a total inverse of the economy of the kingdom of God. Wow. Lori, you with us still? No. Lori's <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm over my head. <laughs> I'm just sitting there nodding and smiling. <laughs> you know, it's um, when we read in scripture, because, you know, when I first started learning this, the first thing I thought of was, okay, you go through the book of Isaiah. What do you see? God's saying there are no other gods but me. They're just mm -hmm. pieces of wood, right? So when you grasp the fact that there were these entities in the unseen realm that had jobs that fell and did not do what they were supposed to do. It kind of makes you look at Isaiah and think, okay, well, what is God talking about then? He's obviously saying that there's no other God like me, right? Yeah, it's there categorical. Like it, exactly. Yeah. It's a category. There is like Yahweh is going to go to Mike. Yahweh is species unique. And it's actually incredible arrogance, incredible arrogance of the supernatural beings of even trying now. This is the, the sin of the serpent, you know? Um, and then when you combine it with um, the passages in Isaiah and Ezekiel, like give the origin story of the serpent, you go, oh yeah, this is the pattern behavior of the supernatural beings that want to elevate themselves to, um, to a category of existence that is not allotted for them that is not designed for them and it also makes sense of why they probably hate humanity because humanity is given the one thing that even angelic beings are not given what is that the image of god right you and i have the image of god now this is purely speculation purely conjecture if i write a fiction book one day this will probably be the, the thesis behind it i think that the serpent the saint the nakash is so jealous of humanity primarily because we've been given the very thing that he thought he deserved mm-hmm Wow. That's good. It's true. It's very true. So when we're reading this and we hear the word divine assembly, and I know other scriptures, you know, other um, translations use different terms for this. For me, when I first heard this, and I'm sure some of our listeners are thinking the same thing. Why would God need a divine assembly? He's God, right? This is what you think. He's omnipotent. He knows everything. He's God. He's the creator of the universe. He can do whatever he wants. Yet he has this divine assembly. He has these, these entities around him that he has given jobs to. Why, for our listeners, why would he need to do that? Yeah. I mean, this is kind of like a philosophical question. Um, and it's also one that I just, I respond with like how kind of God that he does, you know, mm -hmm. like, um, like, why would God need to create humanity? <laughs> you know, like, why would God need to do anything? Well, God does it because God is love. God enjoys community. God desires a family. Um, in one of my chapters of the dissertation, I, I title it God's two, two household family, that he made the angelic uh, supernatural beings. The imagery here is of a household, 
you know? And so why does God do it? Well, because God loves us and God cares about us and God wants us to have worthy work to do. I mean, how unloving would it be for him to create us and then just like get out and walk away or to leave us with no work and no vocation and to sit on our, on our hands and feet, just twiddling our thumbs, you know, like there's not much meaning in that. And so God is a good God who is a great creator, who is the, the, the source and essence of love itself, sees fit to invite us to be participant of uh, created order. And so that's what we see on display with these angelic beings. And that's absolutely what we see on display in Eden with Adam and Eve. Um, and so the work of Jesus from um, and Yahweh, really the Holy Spirit from Genesis 3 up until Acts 2 is the... Um, the return of the Edenic family that God always wanted. Why? Because we all have a role and responsibility to play in a household. You know, my kids, they know that they've got to clean the dishes, you know, do they have to do it or do I need them to do it? Well, no, but it's good for them to do it. Right. It teaches them something. It it's, it's helpful for their mom, their mom and I like, so it's just from a categorical standpoint, it's like, we want to separate God and then we want to just like leave him in this space that is just, um, that is, uh, that strips the, the personality that he has, you know, and that personality is, is love. That personality is, Gosh, he desires. He walked, like I love in, in the open pages of Genesis. It says that God walked with that. It was a still time that he would have a walk. You know, I just learned this other day that the Hebrew word for walk it has no destination in mind. It's legitimately a leisurely walk. You know, it's like when my wife and I go out on a walk, like. Like she has no destination in mind. I kind of do because I get tired really, like I get bored really fast. But she's like, no, we're just walking. We're just walking a walk, you know. Um, and so the the, op, the goal there is not the destination, but it's the journey and the meaning of the time in between. And so I think that's similar to what's taking place here. And, you know, you can see understanding this, that God chooses a divine assembly that like you said, he chose to create us. He did not need human beings. God needs nothing. He is self-sufficient. That he chooses that shows, like you said, his, just how relational he really is. And I think a lot of times, you know, a lot of us who were raised in the church, we see God as this being that is, you know, kind of in a way disconnected to what we're going through. And we see him as this, well, I did growing up that I knew that God loved me, but I felt like he was always upset at me because, mm -hmm. you know, I was always messing up and making mistakes. And I felt like I could never truly make him proud of me. And if I did make a mistake, I, it would take me probably a good month. I would tell myself, okay, if you're just good for the next month. And this is obviously me in my, you know, um, teenage years, high school, early adulthood, if I just, if I'm just good for the next month, then maybe God will forget about what I did or he won't be mad at me anymore. I can, you know, in my mind, I can earn his love back. When you learn more about God and who he is and you see how he connects with not only humans, but also with other entities that he has created, just his creation in general, because obviously his creation exceeds that of this earthly realm. There is like we talk about, there is an unseen realm. There is a spiritual world, war and world going on that we can't see. It makes God so much bigger to me. It makes him more loving. It makes him more kind. It makes him more gentle. It makes him more understanding. And I don't have that feeling anymore of 
you know, him being angry at me or upset at me. Like he's just, it just, it opens, it opens his personality up more to me when I learn about this. Mm-hmm. So it's just amazing. Um, so I do want to ask you real quick. I know we're already getting into an hour, so we need to close up pretty soon. How has culture changed our view of like how we view, cause you know, we know the Bible was written, you know, centuries ago, centuries and centuries ago, thousands and thousands of years ago. How has culture changed over time? Like how we look at God now, how we look at scripture now, it obviously affects how we view passages like this. So how, how has it changed over time and how can we get back to the true meaning of scripture and it's the Hebrew roots and the ancient roots of scripture? Yeah. I mean, um, so the, how do I answer this one quickly? <laughs> so basically there's a, a great Old Testament scholar, Sandra Richter, and Sandra makes a great point where she talks about a hermeneutical flaw where we take our modern existing cultural context and we impose it into the um, um, context of the Bible, right? So the lens that we see through is our modern culture. And, and what she's saying is that's so difficult because the ancient authors don't have our modern culture in mind. You know, they're not using language or vernacular or metaphors or sim- like, the, like it's not based off of what you and I know today. So this poses a challenge. Now, I believe absolutely that um, there is a simple reading of scripture that we can, God has made it possible for the Holy Spirit that we can read God's word and we can grasp the truth of God's word. And I also believe that there's a responsibility for us to be good stewards of God's word so that we can rightly place the scriptures in their context. Um, And so one of the ways that we do that is by looking at um, the original kind of um, social setting and asking this question, like, what did the author what, what was the situation that he was or that he was in? What was the circumstances that were taking place for these people at that time? Um, you know, when you come across an odd word, it's a great place to do a Bible word study or to, um, we've got great resources today, Bible Gateway and Blue Letter Bible that you can do like introductory word studies to get into what does this word actually mean? Um, and so I would just say like one, as a basic practice, let's be careful to superimpose our modern cultural social setting as a lens by which we read scripture and just remind ourselves, hey, this is an ancient text with ancient authors and an original audience. And um, and we want to first try to grasp what it meant to them so we can build a bridge of interpretation and know principally what it then ought to mean for you and I today. Yeah, that's really good. Actually, that is one of the first things I tell people when they start, you know, they want to study the Bible with me or I'm leading any type of Bible study. That's the first thing I tell them. I go, you have to remember who the Bible was written to at that time. And if there's something you don't understand, there's probably a reason why that you don't grasp it. So, so that leads us into a question that we want to ask you, what do you do? And I know that your knowledge of the Bible is going to, um, supersede, (laughs) well, definitely supersedes ours, but, um, you know, the normal everyday Bible reader. So what do you do when you come across something in the Bible that you think is strange or hard to understand, or you can't quite grasp it? Um, I literally just say, why, 
why is it strange for me? I have a piece of paper, I have paper all over my desk and I just start writing down notes. Um, what is it that makes me feel uncomfortable? What is it that makes me feel angry? Why am I nervous? Um, what could this mean? And if it did mean this, then what would the results be? What are the ramifications of the conflict? It is an exercise, an intellectual exercise to um, take that idea, that thought or that verse and look at it from a 360 degree angle, you know? And after I've personally asked all those questions and done all those things, then I go to trusted commentaries or Bible teachers or, you know, and just take a look and say, okay, where did they go? How did they see it? Is there um, context or language stuff that I'm unaware of that might give me a little bit more insight? And it's really beautiful to be able to see how um, God can lead us through our own questions of the text and honesty and then come alongside of us with people who've been there before us that have specialty, you know, intellect in these areas or whatever, expertise in this area and um, come to some, some conclusions. And I would just say, have a posture of humility. Hold these things open. Um, who I am today is vastly different than who I was a decade ago when I first walked into Mike's office. Um, and I know when I walked into Mike's office, I thought I was God's gift to theology at the time. You know, like I was like, I got this. Like, I cannot wait to surprise the the socks off of Dr. Heiser. He's probably going to ask me to write his next book for him. You know, like. like <laughs> and like today I'm just like, oh my gosh, what what arrogance, you know? And um and so just hold these things with humility and know that your position may change over time. And that is an okay thing because God is consistently kind of working and and, and unveiling and unraveling kind of scripture for us. Now, this is where theological um, what do we call it? Um, um Triage is so important, understanding what are the primary doctrines, secondary and tertiary doctrines. Doctrines, um, You know, we die on the hill for the primary. The secondary are the ones that typically we're like, man, we're really trying to figure these things out. And so the I would just say, when, as I say that, I caveat it with these are when I'm saying about things that can change. I'm talking about secondary doctrines. Right, right. You know what, just what you said just now, the thing that stands out to me the most is humility. And that is one thing that I have learned over my life, um, the, the congregate, well, the church that I was raised in, we were taught that we had it all right. And to be a 28 year old with, you know, I had four kids by the time I was 28 and, you know, my husband and I have been going to the same church. Well, me, my whole entire life. And to know that there were things that I had not gotten right was very humbling to me. Mm. And to think that I had it all right at the age of 28 and now I'm 46 and I'm like, who the heck did I think I was so you're right humility and reading scripture is so important to everyone and i don't care how old you are you need to have humility first of all you're never going to know everything about scripture and i 100 believe and i'm sure you do too that we're going to get to heaven one day and we're going to go oh that's what you meant by that oh that's what you were saying oh my gosh that's how that's how the end of the world was going to happen i mean we have all of these you know, we think sometimes that we're so smart and we have it all figured out. And I just truly believe one day we're just going to be even more in awe of God when we truly see clearly a lot of things that we thought we had right. Yeah. So. And, and I think what you said is so important. Humility is the gateway to awe, wonder, and worship, you know? Um, and that's really what we need at the end of the day. Yeah, for sure. Well, okay. So we're going to end with our two closing questions. Um, well, we, me and Lori are avid book readers and podcast listeners. 
So we always like to tell our guests what we're reading and what we're listening to, but we want to know what books you're currently reading right now and what podcasts that you're listening to. Um, yeah, so I, I am a serial um, uh, listener to the Theology in the Raw podcast. Uh, Preston okay. Sprinkle is my hero. Um, I just recently got to meet him, and I just think that what he does is so, so, so brilliant on the podcast. Um, the book I'm reading, I'm horrible with titles. I wish I had in front of me, but it's in, it's in my too. bag somewhere. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I'm like literally like called Flood and Fury by Matthew Lynch. And it's a book about Old Testament violence and the shalom of God. And um, it has been so, so good. I mean, um, so helpful in trying to make sense of these <laughs> like total difficult passages that where God's telling the Israelites to destroy like all the animals, all the children, all the peoples everywhere. And you're like, wait a minute, God, I'm under a love. Um, and so that's what I'm, I'm reading right now. And then I always try to read a biography or something that's more spiritual formation in line. And so every night I'm reading a chapter. It's not so much a biography, but more spiritual formation. Every night I'm reading a chapter of Eugene Peterson's um, this Kingfisher's Catch Fire. And that's been really good. Wow. That's, yeah. You know, the Flood and Fury, I saw that on your Instagram story and I actually put it in my Amazon cart. So I do have that one. Um, my husband probably hates my book, Amazon cart. He's always like, why do you spend so much money on books? I go, because it's my hobby. He goes, but look all the books around you. You're not even reading any of them. I, I go, I know, but I need them there for when I'm ready to read them. Yeah. Yeah. You never know when you're going to need them. You see, it's about comfort. It is. Sounds good. Theology in the Raw. I'm definitely going to have to look into that. I've never heard of that one. Yeah, I love podcasts. So, And I know that Lori has listened to um, Therapy and Theology, the podcast yeah. that you um, are on with Lisa Turker. So yes. for our listeners, you guys need to, and actually a lot of people knew about that. When we uh -huh. mentioned you, they're all, oh my gosh, I've heard him. He's with Lisa Turker. So. Yeah. Um, so what is your favorite? Now we just got done talking about a weird and strange Bible passage, but I want to know what your favorite weird or strange Bible passage story or verses in the Bible. Yeah. I mean, I'm a big fan of, um, of the passage of um, Dagon where the, the idol um, falls face down in front of the Ark of the Covenant. Yes. Um, and the, the way that the, imagery is played out is so interesting because um dagon is kind of like in hebrew language it could have been like a fish image or some, something like that um is like the root of the, the the name and basically the second time the thing falls it falls in the hands and head like fall off break off of it and you basically have like a fish dead in water like dead in uh on dry land you know an image uh i just love that i think it's just irony like the best irony at play um and i and i think it's super so there's this ancient practice that the ancient Near East um, societies, the Canaanites, Babylonians, Mesopotamians, they had, which was a ceremony where they would open the mouths of these idols. They would create the idols and have the mouth open, and they would do a ceremony where they believed in that ceremony that the spirit of the gods would then come into the being or, or into that vessel. So the idol itself was just a vessel, and it contained the spirit or the entity of that thing. I tend to actually 
think that Dagon was probably a, a spirit being in there. And when uh, it came up against the presence of God, like it like ran. <laughs> it was like, I'm out of here. Um, cool. I want nothing because there's this whole cosmic geography, sacred space idea. And wherever God is, he's claiming that territory is his own. And so the enemy has to retreat. And so I think there's something that's more at play there as well. I love that story. And I like you explaining it more because yeah. when I used to read that story, I'd be like, yeah, go God. Like, yeah, fall down. Like, you know, just so excited. Never ever crossed my mind that, you know, the ceremony that you just talked about. I just actually recently learned about that actually from Dr. Michael Heiser's book, Unseen Realm. <laughs> so Joel, this has been an honor and a pleasure to have you on. I have learned a lot from you. I know our listeners are going to learn a lot. And I just thank you so much. I know that you are very busy with your family and all of the amazing ministries that you do. And, um, and then knowing that we had a connection through Pete, I just yeah. had really been looking forward to this. So thank you so much for taking welcome, time with welcome. us today. And if you are willing, we would love to have you on again in the future to talk about some other, you know, weird things in the Bible that are hard for people to grasp. So of course, would be my pleasure. Awesome. Well, Joel, you have an amazing rest of your day and we will talk to you again. You bet. Thanks guys. Okay. Thanks. Bye Joel. Bye. Hey guys, you made it to the end. We hope you enjoy this episode. You can find us on Instagram or reach out to us through email. Our contact info will be in the show notes on our podcast page, and we would love to hear from you. Please be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can help by giving us a five-star review and sharing your favorite episode by tagging us on social media. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time.